Welcome to uh, the second segment of uh, Digging Deeper. This is our um, second interview with Julius Lester, and we'll just continue where we left off. So, Julius, I wanted to talk to you about your children's books. I had a great fortune of reading quite a few of them to prepare for this, and um, Maybe I'm projecting what I would do, but it, fe it feels to me like you're taking this opportunity to write about some really important basic truths about race, about human kindness, and also the book Shining about transforming language, transforming the word black from something negative into something positive and beautiful. Um, and I feel like you just had this opportunity to, you know, give your two cents to this population of, of upcoming citizens of the world, and so you used that opportunity in this way. Is, am I projecting, or does that ring true about your, your writing? Um, I see myself as a storyteller, mm -hmm. and so that... Uh, <clears throat> the the academics and whom have you look down upon children's books and they look down upon hmm. you know literature you know is what they're concerned with I tell stories I think stories are very 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 basic um, and so I grew up in a storytelling environment and what have you um, and all of our lives are stories. Mm -hmm. And so that um, when I sit down to, you know, you know, I don't, when I sit down to write a children's book, I just want to tell a good story. Mm -hmm. um, and to do it in language that sings, I want children to experience a dimension of language that's not present in everyday speech. Mm -hmm. um, and so because my beginnings in, in, in art are in music, you know, the sound of the language is very, 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 very important to mm. me. Um, I think the themes that, that come across, you're really seeing um, me. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the book you refer to, you know, Shining, you know, certainly I set out in Shining to, like a jazz musician, I wanted to do improvisations around the metaphor of blackness. Mm -hmm. And so all the images are mm -hmm. around the word black, and I want them, and so it was, yeah, it was, it was improvisations around the word blackness. Yeah. Um, but it's also about a girl who's silent. Mm -hmm. And when one is silent, one learns to listen. And so it's a book about listening also. Mm -hmm. um, girl who respected her silence. She wouldn't speak. And she respected her silence. Mm -hmm. Didn't know why she was silent. And so near the end of the book, she finds out, you know, right. but, uh, but, but, but she respected who she was. 
And so, you know, my father raised me. My, I have an older, I had an older brother. My brother was the one, you know, there's always, if you're a preacher's kid, there's always one who rebels. Mm. And my brother rebelled. And so I saw what punishment he got, and I saw rebelling doesn't pay off. <laughs> <laughs> Just no gain to rebelling here. Um, and so that I was, you know, I was the good son, and my father was always very clear to me, you know, don't be like your brother, hmm. and don't follow the crowd, be yourself. That was my father's big lesson hmm. to me, was to be yourself. Which he regretted when I became an atheist, and you know, that hurt him, and this, that, and the other, but I followed his advice, I always be myself. So a lot of the books are about be who you are. Don't let somebody else Right. or something else define you, you define who mm -hmm. you are. And so you're not defined by your race. Right. That's other people's definition. That's not your definition. And so, so a lot of it is just me. It's true. A, a lot of your playfulness and your humor comes out in some of those books. And it, I, I was wondering when you were talking about growing up, in your family home and how comfortable you all were talking about God and talking about religion and that God was sort of at the table. Those books that you write, um, Heaven is Not Far, what's the name of it? Oh, Why Heaven is Not Far Away. Why Heaven is Not Far Away. It, it's hysterically funny. And the characters are great, God and Mrs. God and Bruce, the secretary. And, you know, it's just a wonderful, playful way to uh, make a point, really. That's the black church. That's mm, my father. My, okay. my father had a wonderful sense of humor. And my father loved to tell jokes. Loved to tell jokes. <laughs> and so, and in the pulpit, he would start his sermons, you know, with a joke. He loved to laugh. <laughs> and he was very, he was very, very informal. And so all of that is, all of that is, all of that is my father. Wow. And so that. Uh, That's amazing. So that, yeah, I just, I just grew up with that kind of attitude toward it. And so my father would tell those kind of stories about, you know, jokes on God and what have you. Um, so although he was very strict, he was also, he had a great sense of humor and um, was able to stand in public and, um, and, and, you know, bring people in through laughter. So what was, what was his reaction to you converting to Judaism? Did he my understand? Father my father had died. Oh, he did. That's right. My father, my father died in July of 1981. And in November of 81, I had a vision. And this, wasn't, I wasn't, this wasn't a dream. I wasn't asleep. I was awake. And mm. in the vision, I was a Jew. I was, had a yarmulke on my head, and I was dancing, and I was very, very happy. Mm -hmm. It was a really transformative experience. Hmm. Um, and so it was out of that, you know, that I finally decided, well, I, I have to do this. Yeah. Even though I didn't know why I was doing it. It's one of those experiences where I had no idea why I was converted, right. but, I, but I knew I had to do it. And so a few years later, I was, uh, you know, I used to lead services at uh, B'nai Israel Congregation. Mm -hmm conservative congregation in, in Northampton. And I was on the Bema, um, leading services, singing. And I felt my father's presence on the Bema. Wow. And so I knew that my converting was all right with him. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, like, it's like when I told my mother, <coughs> excuse me, I'm visiting my mother, and I 
said, or this is verbatim the conversation. My mother was a woman with very few words. I said, Mom, I converted to Judaism. About an hour later, <laughs> she came in the room and she said, why'd you do that? I explained why. Another hour went by and she came back and she said, well, I'm glad you're going to somebody's church. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Takes her time. It took her, yep, time, it took to her time to figure out what she, how she was going to respond. Yep. So this is kind of a big open kind of question, but I'd love to know in these d days and years, how are you thinking about race? How, how are you ex exploring that in your mind or? I don't. <laughs> um, you know, um, I live in Belchertown, which I guess is probably 99% white. Mm. Um, I'm very comfortable living in Belchertown. I like Belchertown. Um, and um, I'm certainly aware of race. You know, one, one cannot be black and not be aware of race. But I'm also 75 years old, and, you know, it's just not going to impinge on my life the way, the way mm -hmm. it used to. Um, and, you know, I had my DNA done recently. Mm -hmm. And... Um, it turns out that I'm 76% Sub-Saharan African. I'm 26% European. Hmm. Um, of that 26% European, I'm genetically, I'm 13% Jewish. And then there's, you know, there's French and there's Irish and there's English and hmm. there's, you know, some Asian, there's some, you know, this, that, and the other. Getting my DNA done and learning all that has been a transformative experience for me because I realized that I am the product, literally, of 10,000 years of people hmm. um, who came together in various places at various times, and 10,000 years later, here I am. What the hell is race? <laughs> right. You know, I mean, I'm 0.7% East Indian. Who was that person? <laughs> Who was that person? <laughs> I have no idea. Right. But son of a gun, there's a trace of that person, him or her, in my genetic makeup. Wow. How can I narrow, how can I limit mm -hmm. my being to this one single definition of race? Hmm. Whitman said it, I encompass multitudes. Yeah. I encompass multitudes going back 10,000 years. Wow. Yeah. How, what do we do to our lives by these ridiculous categories right. of black and white? What do we do to our lives? 
There's so many connections between us. Mm -hmm. But I don't know whether or not the reality is too complicated, and so we don't want to deal with the complexity of who we are. But I just, I am, you know. There was uh, Europe and, and, and Great Britain used to be one land mass. And there was an area here called Doggerland. And then in the Ice Age, that got flooded and what have you. And they're finding artifacts, fishermen find artifacts in the sea from this civilization nobody knew about, which they now call Doggerland. Well, son of a gun, if my DNA doesn't, doesn't go back to Doggerland. <laughs> That's amazing. Isn't that amazing? People have disappeared. You know, some went to the British Isles, some went to Northern Europe, right. you know, when the floods came with the Ice Age. But son of a gun, there I am. Somebody there helped produce me. Wow. Yeah. The world is bigger and more mysterious than how we limit it's ourselves. It's so wondrous. Yeah. It's so wondrous. And you actually capture some of that in your children's book, uh, Let's Talk About Race. Yeah, I talk, yeah, yeah. You know, you yeah, really do. Yeah. In, in a simple way, it's, the op it's not about DNA, but it's about we all have these bones. If we touch here, you feel the bone. We all have these bones. If we take away the skin, we all look alike. And I have a human skull. My, mm -hmm. my first wife gave me a Christmas wow. present of a human skull. <laughs> so I've, 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 I've had this, this human skull for, you know, God, close to 50 years now that, is, that I keep on the shelf. Yeah. And so the skull, I, you know, I learned from the skull, you know, right. that when I'm dead, that's what I look like. Right. That's what we all look like when we're dead. Right. So when the hell did this acquire significance? Right. It's insanity. It's, it's, it is literally insanity. Yeah. So. And, yeah. Okay, I have another question which is dear to my heart because my family has a kind of a long connection with Pete Seeker. And this year, as we know, Pete died. On, on my birthday. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then I learned that you wrote a book with Pete Seeger. I did. The Folk Singer's Guide to the 12 String Guitar as Played by Lead Belly. Yep. In 1965. It's my very, very, very first book. Right. Yep. So that's why I had to say the first book you published alone was right. the Whitey book. Right. <laughs> So can you tell us that story? How did you and Pete write a book together? Um, Pete had done a series of instructional records mm -hmm. called 12 String Guitars Played by Lead Belly. And so, um, you know, basically I was approached to take the records and turn them into a book. And so, you know, oh, I, okay. I, I met I met Pete first in the fall of 1960. He came down south. To Highlander? To Highlander. Mm -hmm. And so I met Pete at Highlander in 1960. Wow. And so, um, and so you know, um, that's how the book came about. Did you, know. you stay in touch with him throughout your life? We, 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 we were not regularly, but occasionally. Mm -hmm. And last time I saw Pete, I don't know, was uh, a few winters ago. Um, he came by the house. He wanted to. There was something in Hebrew that he wanted to talk about, uh -huh. wanted me to translate or what have you. <laughs> and so he came by the house and, you know, we chatted for a bit. Wow. But, you know, I mean, Pete, the person you saw on stage, 
was the same person That's on right. stage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was no no difference whatsoever. Right, right. Yeah. Well, uh, well, that brings us to the topic of music in general, and I'd love to hear you talk about music because when I listen to you singing the old gospel songs, the freedom songs, and when I hear you singing the Hebrew chants, which I also was able to get at at the archives, some of these um, old films that you did, oh my God, both of those genres, I felt like I was in a holy place, in a holy oh, space. And I totally can feel the resonance and the similarity or the sense of, of that holiness or sacredness in both genres. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, well, I love everybody. I love everybody. I love everybody in my heart. I love everybody well now. I love everybody, yes. I love everybody in my heart. When I sing it, I believe it. Right. Catch me on the street a half hour from now. No. <laughs> but it's like it's Grumpy like Grumpy Professor Lester might be back. <laughs> you know? But but it's like when I sing the music, mm. I am I you know I'm inside the music and it's like something else enters me. Mm -hmm. And it's real. It's just real to me. And so I've always loved Jewish music. Yeah. Always. As a seven-year-old kid, I loved playing Kol Nidre mm -hmm. on the piano. Mm -hmm. Didn't know squat about it, but <laughs> the melody just did something to me. Yeah. And I remember going to a uh, bat mitzvah at JCA many, many, many years ago before I converted and sitting there listening to, I think Rabbi Lander's daughter was mm. the uh, cantor for the service. Mm -hmm. I was just sitting there heartbroken that I would never be able to sing that music. Oh. And so that, you know, when I converted, you know, began to learn Hebrew, then the music became available to me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and so when I sing it, I believe it. Yeah. Um, and. Mm. So it's really about that. It's about it coming through you. Yeah, it's yeah. not, it's not. You know, I, I, I was a folk singer for a number of years. Mm -hmm. I was not a good folk singer because I was not an entertainer. Mm -hmm. I wasn't singing to entertain people. Right. I was singing to change your soul. Mm -hmm. That's what I wanted to do was change your soul. And how did your audiences respond? Because I would imagine they would love that. In a club, no. <laughs> in a club in, in Greenwich Village, no. That's not what people go out on a Saturday night for and get to, their souls changed. Okay. They want to have a good time. Uh -huh. And so that as long as I'm singing in a religious context, 
or a political context, then I'm okay. Okay. But if I have to sing to entertain, right. I'm, not, I'm not very good because I'm not an entertainer. Well, that makes a lot of sense then. You were in the exact right place I was. when you did the singing in the civil, civil rights, rights movement. movement. Yes, I was in the exact right, right place. Wow. Yeah, no question about it because otherwise I'm, I don't care if you have fun. Mm -hmm. I'm not about fun. Hmm. Um, so. Well, my last question or area of conversation is about your photography. And I w will be showing a couple of your, a, a few of your photos in this, in this segment, but it feels a little bit like the music that the photography took you places through your life. Like 1967, it took you to North Vietnam. Right. What, what was that about? I've always been, since a child, I've always, always been drawn to photography, mm -hmm. just, just really drawn to it. But it wasn't until the 60s that um, I got involved. I was, you know, involved in music, and I was on the board of the Newport Folk Foundation, which puts on the Newport Folk Festival. Oh. And so they sent me to uh, Mississippi to uh, collect music and to try to set up festivals in Mississippi wow. rather than bringing musicians up to Newport. And so Newport liked to have its, its uh, projects, you know, that they were sponsoring documented you know, but photographically. So I had been hanging around in New York with David Garr, who was a wonderful, wonderful photographer. And so through David, I got a camera. And, um, and so I started photographing. And I, you know, learned, you know, I, let's back up. I minored in art in college. I studied with Aaron Douglas, who was the premier artist of the Harlem Renaissance. Wow. And so art has always been part of my, oh my gosh. part of my background. And so I knew that I had an eye, mm -hmm. you know, for composition and what have you. And so I spent two years traveling around the South and working for SNCC, um, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, <laughs> um, photographing. And it was a wonderful two years in terms of being able to devote myself to the act of seeing. Yeah. You know, we tend to look at something and we see concepts. Mm-hmm. We see a tree. We don't see that particular tree. And so we think that we have the concept, we know the, the thing. Right. But you have to put yourself in relationship to the thing. Exactly. To know it. And so that's what the act of seeing is. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I love beauty. I mm. love beauty. Yeah. I do. We, we live in a society that's becoming more and more coarse. Yeah. Beauty is as necessary to our souls as food is to our bodies. Mm -hmm. We need beauty. Beauty softens us. Beauty helps to make us more human, more kind. Mm. And we destroy beauty in this country. Every chance we get, we yeah. destroy beauty, you know? And so that one thing I want to do in photography is just is just try to give people the experience of the beautiful. Yeah. And the beautiful exists almost anywhere. Right. You look, you look, you know, there's beauty. And so I, I dropped photography for many years because I couldn't, you know, when I was working for SNCC, 
you know, out of the Atlanta office, I could go into the dark room and stay for 12 hours. Yeah. You know, I reached a point in my life where I had, you know, a <laughs> wife, an ex-wife, you know, children, <laughs> alimony, support, child support, you know, I didn't have time to spend 12 hours in the dark room. Right. You know, but yeah. because of, uh, you know, I thank God for Photoshop. Photoshop oh, gave yeah. me photography back. Yeah. And so, and so that's what I've been doing more than anything else these days, photography. In nature, mostly nature? Mostly or? nature. Yeah, mm -hmm. mostly, mostly nature. And you, where you live, do you have a lot of land around you? We do. We have 12 acres. That's wonderful. And so, um, so yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I, I just look out the door. Yeah. You know, and what have you. It's interesting. One of the photographs that moved me quite a lot from the North Vietnam shoots was that little girl who's looking at you yeah. from behind the pole and yeah. uh, first time she's seen a black person. Yeah. And you capture her and just the relationship between yeah. the two of you in that moment. Yeah. It's very powerful. Yeah. And I love knowing that story behind the photo as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was, we were in a little village and she was, she just kind of peeked out behind, from behind a tree. Mm -hmm. And, um, and yeah, I, I got to Vietnam solely because I was a photographer. Yeah. And I spent a month there photographing. So it's taken me places I would not have gone otherwise. So, so the theme of seeing, not just concepts or looking, and and the music, you know, there's a lot of similarity in both of those. Sort of the, trying to reach within a person beyond the superficial, beyond the surface. They're both nonverbal. Right. They're both nonverbal, and so that you know, even though even though I'm a writer. Even as a writer, I'm aware of the silences between the words. Yes. And and that and so, and and I, I love silence. I, I really love silence. Mm -hmm. um, and so that photography, photography is silence. You know, and that in music, the silence is as important as the notes. That's right. So, Julius, this is reminding me of something that you wrote in Love Song about separateness. And that that was something you learned from your family and somehow a certain way that you felt all your life. You know, you were in community, but you were also separate. Right. And I'm just sort of making some connections now between the music, the photography, and that, you know, that, that sense of separateness. I'm not sure that, is that still as a part of you now as it used to be? Oh, probably more than ever. More than ever. Probably more than ever. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, uh, I have to be separate to be able to do my work. I have to be separate in order to listen. Um, mm -hmm. listen not only to myself but to what's going on in the world I mean Thomas Merton uh, said something on the lines of that that he you know Thomas Merton was a monk and yet he wrote some of the most insightful things about the 60s living hmm. in this monastery hmm. and he said that that in order to uh, you can't push the world from inside you have to be outside in order to push something yeah you have to be separate in order to do something, and and you know, I mean, the separateness is built in is, is built into Judaism. We are a people apart. Mm -hmm. uh, well, not because we're 
snobs that don't like people to think we think we're better, but 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 we're separate because of a relationship to holiness. Right. And so you know, music, photography, you know, they're ways of praying. Right. And so you know, there's prayers you can do in community, but there's also praying that's done separate from community. Right. Um, Beautiful. Yeah. Well, our time is coming to an end. I really have so much appreciated having this conversation it with you. It went by fast. It went by fast. It did. You've kicked off our first our first segment of the show, so I really want to thank you for coming. I uh, also you're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. Really enjoyed it. Good, good. I also want to thank the staff of Amherst Media and Cynthia Brubaker, who really helped get the ball rolling with this show. And finally, I'd just like to make a comment about the Jones Library Special Collections, where there are archives of Julius's work and other beautiful treasures from our community. So I want to thank the uh, librarians up there who gave me quite a bit of help. So thank you all for joining us today, and we'll see you next time.